Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by author and publisher, Eddie S. Pierce, Jr., a resident of Chicago. Pierce received his Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from Chicago State University. He's the founder of Rainbow Room Publishing, LLC. When he learned he was HIV positive, Pierce was also diagnosed with clinical depression. It was through this time of despair that he found a safe haven through his writing. Pierce says he went from exhaustion, anger, and depression to what he often describes as pure black boy joy. Writing allowed him to explore his emotions, reflect on the past, and look to the future. This sense of serenity and safety lit a fire inside of him to further his education and to continue to add to the voices of those living with and affected by HIV and AIDS. After being told his first book, Love, Something Infinite, would be near impossible to publish in a traditional manner, he was inspired to start Rainbow Room Publishing Company out of pure necessity. His love series now includes Love Changes 1.0, Love From Behind, and Love Changes 2.0 and 3.0. He's currently drafting and promoting works which discuss the events surrounding our flawed criminal justice system, marriage equality, and sexism in corporate America. Wearing both hats, author and publisher, is admittedly no small feat, but Pierce believes nothing compares to holding the physical product in your hands at the end of a process. To make something intangible, tangible is worth it all. As a public speaker, he speaks of the challenges he faces as a Christian, HIV-positive, same-gender-loving writer and publisher. What keeps him going? Pierce says he keeps pushing because someone needs to see him succeed. Eddie, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing great. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Michelle, and for that amazing intro. Oh, my goodness. I need you to write one for me. Thank you again. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I know. Isn't it sometimes like you stop and you sit and you listen to people talk about you and you go like, wait a minute, that's me. <laughs> right. Who is she talking about? <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we hear uh, a lot of things come out of Chicago. Sometimes it's not pleasant things, but here you are. You've got your master's in fine arts and creative writing. Where did you get the writing bug? Who inspired you? 
Oh, wow. Um, it's kind of hard to say where it started, per se, as far as, like, um, what that initial spark was, but um, uh, in the sense of actually just the actual act of writing before we get into the idea of publishing and professionally writing, um, even as a child, uh, maybe about eight or so years old, I would uh, do what we as writers know um, is modeling after other mm-hmm. stories. So, um, you know, that's something that's persistent with me that I've always been very um, engaged by into, you know, just storytelling, period, whatever form it takes. But um, at that point in my life, there was a lot of uh, watching cartoons, reading comic books, uh, reading Bible stories, reading the, um, uh, what was it, the Childcraft Encyclopedia uh, series. Mm. Uh, There were about three or four different uh, specific volumes that uh, really grabbed my attention. I know there was one on folklore, one on fairy tales, and I think one on mythology. And so, you know, all of that got me into stories, but then it turned into a thing of somewhere in me, I guess I wanted to see the story go a different way. I wanted to see the story continue. I wanted to see a better ending or a different ending, I should say. And so that turned into me taking those stories as a child and modeling them and rewriting them and in some instances just, you know, totally coming up something with something totally different. Um, as far as the inspiration goes, uh, that's definitely something that I can attribute to my, my family, um, specifically right now speaking about my mother, my grandmothers. Um, I will never forget that um, I would, uh, when I would write those, those stories, you know, I was writing them on, what is that, college rule paper, and mm-hmm. I would um, even, I actually just posted this on social media not too long ago because I found them again, but I would even make a book cover, which was just really another piece of paper, you know, and, uh, you know, even a back cover and everything. And so I, you know, had all those in these binders, and my grandmother would tell me as a kid, uh, you know, keep those stories because they're going to make us rich someday. Uh, we still wait oh. to see that happen. But uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, I've always, always had that, um, you know, in my search for, you know, a job and a career, um, you know, over the years, my mom would constantly come to me and say, you know, I see you looking at for this job. I see you working hard on that job. But what about your writing? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's uh, that, you know, family and close friends have very, very much encouraged and definitely, you know, uh, pushed me to pursue in one way or another, you know, from, like I said, as early as an age of eight. Well, you know, that, that is so important because, I mean, you know, your family supported you. And, you know, often, I, I often tell the story about, you know, and I've talked to other people who write. And often there's somebody in their family who supported them, who encouraged them. And, you know, because it's easy to say, oh, you want to write, or, you know, how are you going to make a living for that? You know, because sometimes we can get sort of caught up in that earning an income as opposed to doing what's your passion and seeing that it will ideally lead to financial um, benefits, but there's that richness in that you have and the fact that you are able to save these stories, that you had the support of your family. And, you know, 
and you're making a difference by sharing these stories, which in you know, which in, in a way is a way of being rich in and of itself when you look at back at, you know, what you do for life. In school, now you were getting the support from your family. Were you getting it in school when you said, you know, I want to go into creative writing or in the classroom? Well, honestly, I didn't even start looking at the idea of writing professionally until, wow, I think I think I can easily say, if, if anything, it, the idea might have started to germinate in my master's at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, during my master's, I was maybe somewhere mid-20s, um, uh, just to give context, but um, as far as uh, schooling goes, I do remember that, if nothing else, I was I was gaining a lot in the sense of what I was being exposed to in terms of the stories, in terms of the writing, in terms of the writers, the authors, uh, looking at a lot of their bios. Um, I remember that, you know, because of my own interest and not really knowing exactly where I was going to go with it, with the writing, um, I did take, you know, maybe one or two more English classes in high school than the next person took. So it was almost like, you know, the beginnings of having an English degree. Um, And I remember reading uh, a number of things, particularly um, American literature. And saying to myself, and I'm not, you know, uh, uh, boasting or putting someone else down, but I remember reading a couple of things and thinking, I could have written this. Mm. I I could have written this. And, you know, something I kind of really kept to myself, to be quite honest. And then, um, you know, in those high school years and those uh, undergrad years, there was, you know, just through some conversation with certain friends of mine and maybe a couple of teachers here and there, you know, explaining, oh, well, you know, I've been writing little stories and things like that since I was a kid, and just their interest, not necessarily saying, oh, go for it as a professional, but their interest in the stories that I was telling uh, was very, very much encouraging. Um, It was probably, um, like I said, definitely when I was pursuing the master's, uh, somewhere in there, what happened was that I had started writing a story some time before that. Uh, basically, I would go in and out of, you know, months and years without writing at that point, uh, just because I didn't see, you know, like you kind of alluded to, the idea of, you know, what is the practical use of this? What is the practical application? What is the financial material benefit of it? Um, and I had gotten away from doing something that, one, I loved, two, that I was starting to understand um, helped me to kind of see the world around me better, to help me to process things better. But um, so on a whim, I was actually on a uh, on my way to Las Vegas for a job interview at the time. Um, on a flight, and I knew going in, I've always been very pretty good. My parents and family can attest to the fact that I've always been pretty good about um, uh, keeping myself amused, keeping myself entertained. And so on that plane ride, I thought I need something to do. And I thought, well, I haven't mm-hmm. written anything in forever. And so I started a short story, uh, maybe had about 10 or so pages um, between the trip there and trip back. And uh, one thing leads to another, and I'm applying to the, uh, the fine arts program um, with the, uh, the Chicago State University. And for the purposes of my application into the program, I needed to have 40 pages of probe. 
And so me being me, being very practical in a lot of respects, I said, well, I already have 20 pages. Let's just go add on this, <laughs> but just, you know, put this mm-hmm. onto the application. And so we get into the school, and I know going in that I'm going to be doing a thesis, and I know that it's going to be a creative uh, uh, thesis, a novel. And somewhere in there I learned that I needed 100 or 120 pages for that. And so I said, okay, well, once again, I have 40 pages. Why would I start from scratch? I have 40 pages. Let's, you know, uh, keep going. And so um, over the course of those two years working on the master's, there was some opportunities to share some different parts of what became the first book uh, with teachers, with uh, classmates who were also uh, very, very talented writers. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was more encouragement there. There was more support there. And uh, it was the process of, you know, uh, finishing the thesis and everything that turned into saying, hey, you know, we're going to pursue publishing this. So there was, there was um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time just even recently, uh, you know, we kind of talked a little bit before we got started, and uh, you talked a lot about the idea of support and how you keep pushing when you don't really have it, when you don't really feel it, and that sort of thing. And so it's very interesting that, you know, we're asking this question now because I've been spending a lot of time just in the last few months looking at expanding my definition of support. Um, you know, it's very, very uh, easy to get zeroed in on who bought a book, who didn't buy a book, and that kind of even gets a little, you know, emotionally traumatic and, 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 and can get discouraging. But I start to see that, you know, the people who support, the people who like, the people who ask, the people such as you that choose to do an interview, you know, it's all this different kind of support. And I'm just learning to be grateful for all of it, uh, to share it where I can, to reciprocate it where I can. And, you know, that's kind of how I get to, you know, answering the question that, you know, it wasn't so much that everyone even knew what I was pursuing back in those days, but without knowing, they were still supporting me as a writer, supporting me Mm -hmm. even figuring out that's what I ultimately wanted to do. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, one of the things that I like is that you talk about the challenges of being HIV positive, same gender loving, and writing a book. And, you know, I have a, a, another good friend who's an author, Lowane Orlando Children, and he wrote a memoir ah. about, about the same thing, you know. And um, do you know Lowane? <laughs> uh, yeah. We're connected wrote, on Facebook, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I met him at at uh, a fire and ink thing and we and we've become good friends and he chose you know much like you like at this point like you talked about um how you had a moment of of depression and how to in this time of despair you found a safe haven through your writing he also found you know he did that he opted to write a memoir i mean which was going back to like early feelings from a child on through as a memoir, where yours is autobiographical fiction. How did you choose which direction you wanted to go? Because I know you wanted to share your story for others who are living with and affected by HIV and AIDS. You wanted to share your story, but rather than doing the memoir, you did an autobiographical fiction. What made you choose that genre? 
Um, you know, honestly, I can't really say that I consciously chose it. Um, like I said, when I think about the idea that, you know, the story that I started writing on that plane ride, it was never any intention to share that at all with anyone. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And then when it came to, you know, uh, the application, you know, I only expected people that were trying to, you know, the admissions application, those were the only people I expected to read it. And then, of course, when it got to the thesis, you know, it was, okay, well, the people that are going to review the thesis and this and the other. It wasn't until after I got um and so after I graduated from that program that I started to think about publishing it. So um, I didn't really have that in mind so much. I think it was just more so that I had already started on a track and just kind of kept going with it where I had already started changing names, changing events, changing cities, and things of that nature. Um, I think on some level it was, it was an interesting balance that I remember we talked about in the master's uh, program that, Sometimes when you're writing certain things, um, it is easier to write them from a distance, you know, to separate yourself from the character. Um, But then at the same time, there was a desire on my part to keep the emotions. I talk about this a lot that, you know, a lot of people ask me all of the time, um, you know, oh, God, is this all true? Did this already happen? And that sort of thing. And, yeah, I borrowed a lot from real life, and I borrowed a lot and changed a lot. And then in other instances, I saw perfect places to just put in a huge twist. And on some level, it was about, you know, protecting other people um, and their identity, Mm -hmm. Um, wanting to be very, very careful about how I presented, uh, you know, even archetypes of the friends and family members, you know, that I loved that were also represented, you know, in the story. Um, You know, in the book, in that first book especially, I talk about a lot of uh, difficult emotions and some things that were exacerbated by people around me at that time. And so it was kind of my attempt to not demonize them, not villainize them uh, by, you know, changing things up. But, um, you know, I have to admit that in the last, you know, a year or so ago, I have been um, thinking a lot back on the idea of doing an actual memoir. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that's, you know, kind of on the back burner. I definitely, you know, I want to do it. Um, I've actually been even looking, you know, lately at a few old journals and things I have scattered all over the place, you know, to see, okay, what uh, do I already have to kind of work with and to work from. Um, but I think when I get to that story, it just would have a different, Purpose. Whereas, whereas this story, you know, the central character is named for me. Well, it has my middle name, and like I said, mm-hmm. I did borrow a number of things from my own life. But I think in that in that story, I want to talk about some specific things that weren't so much me. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. want. I wanted it to have more, I guess, universal appeal. I wanted to present, you know, emotions, feelings, and possibly even circumstances that anyone could read and connect to, you know, whether they were black, gay, white, straight, Hispanic, you know, Christian, atheist, whatever the case may be. But when it comes to the memoir, when I think about that, um, I honestly do think about, you know, well, what do I want to leave behind? What, you know, Mm -hmm. granted, you know, some would say I already have a legacy of some sort, you know, being built, but, you know, what I want to leave behind that's really, really authentically 100% me. And on some level, I think I just hadn't been ready to write that story yet. 
Um, I have to admit that, uh, you know, I, I give a lot of uh, praise to, you know, to the brother in question and, and anyone else I think that does that because it does, you know, it takes a level of courage to put what I'm putting out there, true mm-hmm. or not, but it's really, really a bold, courageous step, in my opinion, to, you know, really, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, to be telling the truth down to every letter, down to every word. And so I think I just haven't grown into that place um, in a lot of respects to do it that way. The fiction, um, once again, it was similar to going back to the idea that, you know, the stories that I drew from as a child, I didn't necessarily care for, you know, different aspects of them. So I wrote them again and wrote them differently. And so this was an opportunity to kind of rewrite my life. Um, Somewhere in there I even started to see that I was starting to write a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, mm. to go to the whole idea of uh, Christian concepts, Christian theology. You know, there's a lot of, um, and not even just Christian theology from my own learners and understandings, but there's a lot of uh, beliefs out there in the power of the words we speak. And somewhere in there I saw that, oh, that holds true for the words we write as well. Mm. And mm-hmm. so I started to write what I hoped to see happen, you know, in a lot of respects. And uh, to finish that question, it actually turned into, I think by the time I was starting on the the short stories that became the current book, Love Changes, I was uh, had the opportunity to move from Chicago to Texas. And I remember telling a friend of mine at the time, and he said, wow, you know, this was 2015, he said, wow, you wrote that, you know, referencing the book that I released in 2011. My character had an opportunity to leave Chicago to go to Vegas, and I now have the opportunity to leave Chicago and go to Texas. And so I saw a lot of little things like that happening. So I guess that's also another reason why I go that, that track record, you know, go that, mm-hmm. that track with the writing that, you know, it's like on some levels like that story's already been told. Um, it's kind of immutable at this point, but when I put it on paper, I can make it into anything I want it to be. Now, you write, I write, <laughs> okay, and often you get inspiration, and I know exactly what you mean, but I have had someone, like, tell me something, like you said, that thing, like, oh, you know, I could have done this better, and wrote it in a different vein, or mm-hmm. wrote something, I mean, even, like, I had someone once who told, used the line, like, I give them all 90 days, and I'm going, like, oh, I like that, and I took it, and I did something else, and I did that. But then have you ever written something and then have someone go, come to you going like, are you talking about me? <laughs> or on the, flip <laughs> side, on the flip side saying like, look, I'll go out with you, but I don't want to see myself in, in, in one of your books. <laughs> uh, great question. Um, you know, honestly, with the first book, I did uh, kind of, I don't know what's the word, um, tiptoe around and, you know, share parts of the manuscript, you know, to different people that I knew, you know, in some way, shape, or form, you know, embodied some aspect of some of the characters. Um, in a lot of instances, what I did, best example is uh, that the uh, central character has four girlfriends, and mm-hmm. with them, they're all, you know, a spectrum of different uh, body types and appearance and personality and whatnot. And... I, in the creating of those four characters, I actually kind of mixed and merged multiple girlfriends, far beyond just those four. But I did have a friend of mine that said, oh, that's me. 
That's me. <laughs> and she and she had she had no problem with it. There were some other people I thought that I wrote and didn't even really plan to, but where I felt that I wrote them so exactly um, uh, or so similar to, you know, the inspiration in real life, and then I sent those, you know, portions to them, and to the, to this day they were like, I still don't see that as me. It's still, I, which one was me again? So it works either way, and so far it's been working great, and nobody's tried to sue me. <laughs> um, on the second question, though, um, I have had, some concerns about that um, uh, as far as the dating thing goes. I know that, um, you know, one of the things I know I look at a lot with social media is, you know, how much people put out about their own life and their own business, and not only that, but how negative, you know, it could, it could be. Um, I remember, you know, even uh, dating someone at one point who uh, just kind of went into a barrage of, of some um, negative backstory about some things with him and his ex. And I remember thinking, well, I would never date anybody that does all of that. You know, I just couldn't because I know, you know, just the law of averages before you get to doing anything or taking into account anything that makes Eddie a little special or a little different from the next person, I know I'm going to make you mad at some point. And if you mm-hmm. get all of this, <laughs> some things that were borderline criminal charges, there's no telling. You know, but then I started to have said that for about two years to myself. I started to think, oh, man, hmm, am I going to have some difficulty with this dating situation because everyone is scared that I'm going to put them into a story? So it's definitely something that, you know, I think about a lot, but it also does inspire me when it comes to the writing to be just that much more crafty with, you know, trying to, you know, really, really make it. I mean, because at the end of the day, I want the characters to have a life of their own. And mm-hmm. that's the only reason I think that I've gotten so far in the stories. And, in fact, I'm actually, what, 20 pages into writing in the next book. And it's, it's been so much easier in a lot of respects to write the subsequent book than the first book because somewhere in the first book, these characters, the central character, as well as all these other people that make up this world, they came, became really, really established. They really, in my opinion, there are still some similarities, and I can say to myself, oh, yeah, I thought about this person when I wrote this, that, or the other, but I can still see them as standalone, you know, just for lack of a better word, uh, two-dimensional people. You know, they only exist mm-hmm. in the book. Um, and somewhere in there, they just all, the central character included, they just all have grown so far beyond whatever that initial inspiration was. And that's extremely gratifying for one thing, but then also the fact, too, that, you know, for anyone that's thinking, oh, God, everything he's put in all these books is him just stealing everybody's business and everyone's <laughs> so far from that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I love all of the books for a number of different reasons. Um, the first one primarily, especially because it was the first. But everything after the first one really, really was more imagination-based than memory-based. So mm-hmm. I kind of had to give myself some leeway on that and just trust to know that, you know, the right guy is going to look up and say, I love you for what you're doing, I'm loving your talent, and I'm not worried about you, you know, handling our, our relationship you know, in a book for everybody to read. Yeah. I know. I mean, I wrote a a children's book, and I had started on it, and it it was called Jack with the Curly Tail, and I had someone say, am I Jack? And I said, it's a dog, okay? It's a dog. It's not (laughs) I mean, it's like, you know, 
I guess I gave the dog human traits, but it's not you. It's a dog, you know. So, um, Eddie, we're going to take our first break here, and um, when we get back, we're going to talk about your journey into publishing. So we will be right there. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, talking with author and founder of Rainbow Room Publishing, Eddie S. Pierce, Jr. You know, Eddie, you're, I've been on panels in other cities with LGBT authors, and many of them say that, you know, well, if I want to sell the book, I have to, like, fit into a template. And you talk about the challenges as being, you know, you don't. I mean, many people think that, LGBTQ people aren't Christian, although we know we are. You know, um, you talk about mm-hmm. being HIV positive. You talk about being gay. I mean, was, did you find that when you first said, I'm going to, to write, and you started doing these stories, and, you, I mean, you got some feedback that it was going to, then when you went to regular publishers, did you find that they wanted to edit you or put you in a box and say, well, this is kind of good, but maybe if you went more this way. Um, you know, honestly, I tell people this a lot. I'm trying to remember what it was that I first initially submitted to publishers, but it wasn't this book. By the time mm-hmm. I got to writing this book, um, I had, uh, honestly, through my undergrad studies even, I graduated undergrad in 2000. That's when I first started to pay attention to the publishing industry and started the hearing, started hearing, you know, the changes that were coming down the pike. And, you know, and, and you can uh, attest to this, but it was a lot of the idea of the publishing world shrinking, uh, a lot less. Uh, focus on, you know, physical books, Um, and, you know, then even looking there at the difficulty of, you know, getting published, how long you had to wait just to kind of feel that your submission letter was looked at and then rejected before you even went to another publisher, uh, because that's Mm -hmm. something a lot of us don't know that you can't do multiple submissions and things of that nature, but um, by the time I got out of the master's, I had had so much um, conversation with that uh, on that same topic and just really, really felt at that point, you know, I think I had submitted some different poetry. I had submitted some different short stories and things like that to different journals and magazines and things, and nothing really was coming of it at that point. Um, but ironically, and it was very interesting that I would say that, but um, at that same time, I'm working at Chicago State. I'm going to Chicago State, I should say, and I find out about uh, 95 Notes uh, Literary Magazine, which was um, a literary magazine 
run and operated by students of Chicago State, so it's not Chicago State Magazine. And uh, they selected one of my poems, giving me my first publishing credit. And then while still studying in the master's, one of my instructors, she was working on an encyclopedia uh, project, uh, Encyclopedia of Identity. And she, you know, approached a number of different students about, you know, uh, coming in and, and writing an entry for this. And so I think somewhere in there was where it started to germinate that you need to make your own opportunity. You have to create your own opportunity. Other people are doing it. You can do it. That's where you're, you know, kind of gaining any kind of ground, you know. And that was after, you know, writing off and on, you know, since I was a kid. Now I'm something, what, 20 years into it, maybe a year or so into the whole act of trying to submit things and not hearing much of anything back. And somewhere in there it just seems to me like, yeah, this is just, not going to happen uh, or it's not going to happen as quick or what have you. So I didn't really get a lot of feedback uh, from anyone suggesting that I needed to change much of anything. Um, when it came to the first book, well, actually the first two, um, I actually did go through a self-publishing service. So you know how you, you submit them the manuscript and you submit, you know, whatever cover art and, you know, you're basically paying them to do all of the paperwork legally and the actual physical creation of the book. And um, even there, at most, largely I guess too because, you know, it was what um, I learned at the time was referred to as a vanity press where they just publish anything that anyone pays them to do. So mm. they, you know, there was, aside from the editing and the fact-checking, there really wasn't much, you know, there. Um, and that whole process, honestly, I looked up later on and realized how much I had in, enjoyed that creative control, that I didn't have those back and forth with anybody about, you know, for the most part, what I could and couldn't do, down to who I chose to work with, which for me has always historically been a number of friends and associates when it came to editing and uh, cover art and designing the cover art, photo shoots, things of that nature. So that honestly has not been one of my struggles. It's something that I do anticipate with the idea of pursuing some other ventures, ideally, you know, anything that would be um, an adaptation of the books into a web series or a TV series or a movie or a play or what have you. I'm kind of getting my mind around that. Um, and I do know I have some control issues, so I'm really mm-hmm. kind of trying to prep myself for that. But honestly, no, that hasn't hasn't been my uh, hasn't been my experience. That um, you know, I had too many people telling me that I had to conform, you know, to much of anything uh, when it came to the writing of those books. Mm-hmm. So, how did you choose your name, Rainbow Room Publishing? Uh, so, excellent story. Uh, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. um, so, uh, long story short, uh, I came out to a few family members, a few friends by the time that I was in my undergrad year. And right after graduating, I just, being dramatic, I sent an email <laughs> to about <laughs> 70 different friends. 
and kind of in a very roundabout way, being a writer, just never being able to be brief, you know, came out and was kind of asking for people's acceptance. And it turned into a number of conversations that was happening, that were happening, quote, unquote, behind my back, I guess you would say. And, but they would always get back to me. And so in one of those conversations, one of my friends, one of the friends that I came out to first, probably one of the first 10 or so people, she was explaining to me how, I guess, different people had started to compare when they knew what they knew or when I told them what, you know, I told them as far as my sexuality. And so she drew this analogy that it was like being invited to Eddie's Rainbow Room. And <laughs> you're, thinking, you're thinking just because you got invited that you're on the A-list because, you know, here's a secret he's not telling everyone. And so you get to the party and don't know that you're kind of, how did she put it? Um, it was almost like I grouped the people into, like, uh, classes, uh, uh, A class, B class, B class. And so she was saying that everyone came in thinking that they were just all part of the same party, the same class, not understanding that where they just got to the party, the other folks have gone on to the after party. Mm. And so that story kind of stuck, and it turned into whenever I had little gatherings at the house at the time, you know, I even started to use it, hey, we're partying at Eddie's Rainbow Room. And then when I got to uh, needing a name for the company, uh, so basically I, when I did the first book, as I mentioned, I went through a, self, a self-publishing service, and it was somewhere in there that I realized, wait a minute, I paid for this. I orchestrated this. I gave them all the orders. I'm a publisher. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that turned into me simultaneously releasing the first book and launching the company on the same night. And, you know, somewhere now, obviously now I needed a name. And I cannot, honestly can't tell you exactly what went through my mind. I can just tell you that it was a very, very quick decision, no deliberation, no alternative name, didn't even go ask anybody else, you know, do you have an idea for a name? That just came to me, Rainbow Room Publishing. It just made sense. And, you know, and I had to admit everything from choosing the name to getting logos made and everything, it has just constantly day by day confirmed for me that I made the right choice in terms of the name. But, yeah, I had, I had to give some of the credit to one of my uh, uh, good girlfriends from uh, my undergrad days. Mm-hmm. Well, it's something I saw you said, you know, how earlier how you were saying how, like when you were talking about how what you wrote came forward and, you know, even like to where you were thinking about moving to Texas and in your book you had done it. But it was almost like the same thing happened. You were going to write, you were going to get published, and then as you looked at it, you were a publisher. <laughs> and then the next yeah. the next door yeah. opened for you to do this. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So what yeah, actually, I forgot about that. Yeah, I forgot mm-hmm. about that aspect of the first story that, you know, I remember that the central character is a writer, but I forgot mm-hmm. that even in the first story he was attempting to figure it all out. You know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. So yeah, going back to the idea of the, the self fulfilling prophecy. So you know, I mean, what was the biggest challenge for you? I mean, because you're wearing two hats. I mean, there's the the. Sometimes I know as an author, you really want to be able to just let me sit and write and hand it off to somebody else to do it. But you you have to wear <laughs> all the hats. What's the biggest challenge to you, and that you would advise someone who's going like, well. Hey, 
Eddie did it, I can do it too. Um, you know, uh, wow, uh, that brings to mind a number of things, but uh, probably what, you know, probably most pertinent is that, um, so right now, you know, I've released the third book um, back in May and been heavily, heavily promoting it. Um, and this is the first time, to be honest, in this whole process that I really, really, for the most part, been self-employed. That's just all been about the writing. Um, I do mm-hmm. teach online, part-time, um, adjunct, uh, also teaching creative writing there. But uh so obviously now that I'm looking at it as the primary job occupation, there is a lot more focus on the finance. So it turns into a lot more focus on how do I sell the book, how do I get them in people's hands. And about maybe a year ago, um, I was um, watching a YouTube video. Um, if I remember correctly, it was a panel of, you know, uh, New York Times bestsellers, and they were all giving their different advice to an audience. And one of the uh, authors said something that really, really stuck with me, and it was the idea that um, don't get so stuck on promotion. Don't get so stuck on the business side of it. Um, At the core, you're still a writer, and no matter what else you're doing, you're still supposed to be writing. And so I had gotten away from that. And, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier about, uh, well, just talking about the struggles in general and how we keep going and things like that. And somewhere in there, I seem to lose that, that um, what's the word, uh, that focus on the writing, on the creating. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, that's the thing that really fuels all of this for me. Um, it's, it's, um, if I get nothing else done that day, if I get nothing else done right that day, some days if I can say I wrote those two pages, that that's all I need, you know, and you know being a writer too that you know you know you get those two pages and you can get a good momentum and then keep everything going, but then also on the emotional side of things, I had gotten away from um you know recognizing as being the benefit of that release um when I'm writing um or even just even the idea that I need to take my mind away from you know whatever might be troubling me that day I might not write specifically about it but the act of writing you know just clears my head I feel like I breathe better and that sort of thing and so the struggle there being that you know like I said the idea that you you're wearing these two hats you have to wear these two hats in my case I'm the whole company you know short Mm -hmm. of um, the things that I outsource to friends and associates, you know, for editing and things like that. But, you know, the train, in a lot of respects, doesn't move unless I push it. And so I have to, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm working a lot on this in these last few months, honestly, on finding that balance between the business and the writing. In the past, it's always been a thing of, well, what do I have time to do at this moment? What is immediate in this moment? What is the next logical step or, you know, what have you? And a lot of that, too, was also, you know, influenced by the fact that I was working full-time at the time. I was also teaching online part-time at the time. I was in a relationship, uh, living with my partner at the time, and we were managing a household. So there was just so much other stuff going on, so much stuff to be distracted from, and it was like maybe I was writing, you know, one year, and then the next year was all about the publishing, and I had gotten so far away from the writing, and it gets hard 
for me at least to get back into it, you know, um, when I'm that, you know, uh, away from it, when I've been away from doing it that long. Um, So, I mean, definitely the struggle is the idea of, you know, managing both uh, quote-unquote beasts, as I sometimes Mm -hmm. call them, um, and, you know, just trying to figure out that balance of business and art. Um, and also even keeping in mind, you know, the idea that I know, and I've often advised this, you know, to a lot of other people, when I get into the writing, I have to let go of the business concerns. I have to let go of, um, do we have the money to publish this when it's done? I have to let go of, will anybody buy it? How many people bought the Mm -hmm. last one? Um, I have to get back to that place, that eight-year-old that's just writing to write, and whatever comes out, comes out. And if it turns into something that I share or sell, you know, just trusting that that's all going to happen. Um, so it, it definitely, for me, is uh, the, the struggle is that balance, finding that balance between the art and the business. Mm. Now, you know, um, I talked to another author and publisher, and we were talking about the way of books. And, you know, some people... I mean, I'm still one, I, I do read some things online, but I also have a large collection of books and sometimes like having a book in my hand. It's something that you can look at and I can go back and refer to. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it will be something that, that, that inspires me. As you're looking at it and you're wearing both hats, what do you see as the future of books? Are you, you know, I mean, we hear about how the local bookstores Many of them, but small bookstores are disappearing. And But as you're looking at it and you have to, to go from putting one head on to the other, what do you see as the future of books and where do you see you putting your emphasis? Is it in the e-book? Is it in, you know, having both, like the, the book that someone can have in their hand? And how do you then, in the promotional piece, help? encourage people to continue to read a lot of people say oh i never read i don't have time to read how do you how do you address that change in society um well you know much like you i am of uh the mind that wherever i can have and hold a physical book you know i like to um there have been a number of life changes a number of different moves a number of changes to living situations in recent years um but there was a point where i did have a pretty extensive library and just because of necessity and lack of space i just couldn't travel with all of that and so i had to let a lot of it go and it turned into more of a focus on ebooks and especially on audiobooks. And um, but I do know that I still love that that whole feeling, that whole tangible feeling of a physical book. Um, when it comes to you know what I've done in the past or to date, um, I've uh, typically had the hardcover, the paperback, and the ebook version uh, for all of my works. Um, it's only been in the most recent work where um, the current. Uh, book that's out now, Love Changes, it's actually four short stories, uh, mm-hmm. three of which were previously released as individual ebooks. So where the full story is called Love Changes or the, the, the tangible book, the full collection, um, you also have what's referred to as Love Changes 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, those being the short stories that uh, make up 
uh, the current book. Um, when it came to this book, for a number of reasons, I wanted to go strictly with paperback initially. Um, looking at it financially, honestly looking at, as I explained to a lot of people, I just really haven't seen where the, the hardcover sold as much for me in the past, so I decided I was mm-hmm. going to go away from those. Uh, the e-books, um, I do see a lot of people gravitating to those. That's been very gratifying. It's definitely uh, a format that I plan to continue following. Um, honestly, for me, I aspire to have for every book before everything is said and done, you know, every conceivable edition that's out there. So um, even looking at the idea of doing audiobooks at some point soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that goes towards even to your uh, question about, you know, how do you get people to read, things like that. Um, I think it's like any other product in a lot of sense that we have to put it within reach of the uh, the audience. We have to put it in the format that they're familiar with. You know, in a lot of respects, all of us, honestly, are looking for the most convenient anything. Um, so where we as the writers, the publishers, can make it more convenient for the reader, we have to take that into consideration. Um, and it's another reason, honestly, that I like the idea of going to audio, um, being that I myself cannot carry around the huge library that I like to carry around. Um, the e-books, the audio books, you know, they allow me to have those dozens and dozens of books that I can't currently keep on the shelf. But... I have to admit that I still gravitate more now to audio than mm-hmm. to ebooks. I can't really say that I ever really, really got excited about ebooks, honestly, um, as a reader myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I do have to admit, I remember when I did the first short story, um, the first uh, Love Changes 1.0, uh, as I was getting to the place where it was going to be done and it's going to be on Amazon and I could put it on a Kindle, I kept saying to myself, man, this is going to feel totally different than the first two books. Um, you alluded to it in, in, in the introduction. I have to admit that I really do get, uh, for lack of a better word, I get off on the idea of taking this thing that was only in my head and now being able to hold it in my hand. And so when I came to that ebook, I was like, man, this is going to be different because you're not going to be physically holding a book. Um, and even the idea of having a table set up and wanting to sell something to someone and, you know, thinking about it from that business standpoint that a person that gives you money wants to walk away with something, you know, mm-hmm. some proof that they made a purchase. And so, um, but I'll never forget that when I got done with that ebook and I looked down at it because I had to, you know, obviously make sure everything was going to work. So I'm looking at it on the Kindle and I'm flipping through it. I kind of had the same sensation of holding a book. I'm sure on some level it's because the Kindle is, you know, shaped like a book. But um, so I do still see where that translates, that idea of having something to touch and hold, you know, it definitely translates for me. I think it would still translate for, you know, a lot of other uh, readers. But the audio right now for me is a really big goal. Um, it's something that, honestly, I've gotten into in recent years because of some friends of mine. And if anything, I really got into them because of the amazing talent that reads the works. Um, one person in particular, I've seen where this woman has done as many as 20 different characters in one book, and all of them easily distinguishable, you know, kind of thing. Um, so that's something that I'm definitely going for. That's something that I definitely think is going to be a trend for some time. 
um, audio. Um, and you also know how we now have uh, Amazon. Certain titles will be available in uh, ebook form, but then I believe they have what is referred to as a whisper sync, where mm-hmm. it can still also be heard you know, on an audio basis. So I'm thinking that a lot of things are going to be moving towards you know, um, what I even aspire to do with my ads and with my promotions and everything, presenting a multimedia experience. Um, as much as a person can see and hear, you know, you're going deeper into the experience of that story than, um, you know, which I still say a lot can be fair for purely visually looking at the words and letting your imagination fill in the pictures. I personally still appreciate that, but I can see where as a reader you do gravitate towards those things that engage as many of the senses as possible, just like when we write a book and we're trying to set a setting. You know, ideally, you're talking as much as possible about the taste, the touch, the feel of that character. And here's a chance where the readers can, you know, experience that. So I'm thinking that there's going to be a lot more uh, tech. I think there are going to be, I feel honestly and, and believe honestly that there are going to be enough of us around perpetually that still want a physical book, mm-hmm. that we still have those as an option. <laughs> but... I do see where, like even for myself, um, business, publishing, everything is going towards, okay, how do I produce the best product at the least amount of cost to me and the least amount of cost to my readers? And right now, that seems to be a lot more of your e-books and your, uh, uh, in some cases, your audio. Now, do you see, okay, there is that part, though, as you are telling your stories um, and people read and, and maybe read part of themselves in your books. And then when you're out and they have an opportunity to interact on you, that that's also part of your broader mission. I mean, because you want to explore, tell about our authentic lives and, and give us people a broader sense of what being same gender loving, being Christian, being a person of color means. So there is that aspect of your work too that comes with being out there, being at the book, at the table with the books or being on a panel and afterwards talking with the audience and signing a book for them that they're going to take back and who knows, the, the little Eddie of the future might look at this book and go like, hey, I could write this book too. So mm-hmm. how do you balance, you know, that business decision that you need to make, but also that role that you're very present in the room talking about the path you've taken, the how you have dealt with what many people, let's face it, we know everybody doesn't get back up easily. And, that you're able to say, not only does it get better, but this is how I worked through this and got to this point. How do you balance those two callings that you have to be a, a successful businessman, to have a successful publishing company, but the inspiration that you, being you, writing your words provides? Well, um, you know, honestly, I, man, I feel a little bit better about my efforts now that you think about this question. Um, when 
it, it all started with the first book that, um, you know, I, I, for the first two books, we did the whole release party, and they were very impressive. You know, we had a great time. Um, but um, I would always, a series, okay. oh, did I lose you? Okay. Yeah, um, it would be a uh, it would be a series of um, book discussion groups and, you know, uh, which sometimes involved me doing a reading from the book. And what I had been doing, honestly, though, was that, so I, I thought about the idea that, you know, we often experience a good book, a good movie, a good song, and the first thing we want to do is talk to anybody else about it. And in a lot of instances, we're the only person that knows about it. Um, but then I also looked at the idea that, you know, i got to sell these books. Here's another way to sell them. And so I started doing a series of book discussion events. So basically, um, you know, some public, some private, so sometimes different organizations, uh, you know, might, you know, say, hey, we want you to come in and, you know, conduct a discussion and, you know, usually turns into them buying books as well. But uh, that's where the readers get to have that experience right there with me as the author. Um, and also in more recent uh, uh, years, honestly, too, being able to talk more about the publishing side of things, how they might be able to pursue that. Um, it usually, though, is that on one hand, I'm always also thinking about, you know, people that hate spoilers, so to speak. I'm the type of mm -hmm. person, honestly, if you tell me a movie from beginning to end, I'm still very visual. I'm still going to want to see it. But I was thinking about, you know, okay, some of these events people wouldn't necessarily come to because they feel like, oh, I haven't got the book yet. I haven't read the book yet. So what I would do was that I would lift the important issues that I was illustrating out of the book, change and, and draft discussion questions. And in the question, I'd allude to the fact that something like this happens to this, that, or the other character um, in the book. So it allowed me to still get the important messages out that I wanted to get out um, without spoiling the story for anyone, and if anything, probably enticing them a little bit more to buy the book if they hadn't already done so. Um, it would also, like I said, give that opportunity to be right up close, you know, with the author, uh, the idea of doing the book discussion in tandem with a book release was just purely the idea that you had more events. Most people couldn't necessarily make it to the book release. They'll make it to, you know, the book discussion. Um, and um, lately there have also been some different opportunities to speak to some high school students, uh, speak to some young people in the community, and just kind of do a free-for-all, let them ask whatever they want to ask about. And a lot of that has been more recently the conversation of, okay, now how did you do this again? You know, um, how did you do the writing? How did you get the cover? How did you, you know, publish it and that whole piece? So it does still, you know, allows me to once again wear both hats. And I honestly hadn't really thought mm -hmm. about how how well uh, balanced or, I don't know, uh, uh, put together those events are in that it does allow me to do all those things. It allows me to come at it from the businessman angle as well as, as the artist as the sentence to inspire, you know, the next writer, reader, you know, what have you. So, okay, well, we're going to take our second break here, and then we're going to come back and talk about love. <laughs> So All we'll right. be right back.
Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And if you're just joining me, I'm talking with author and publisher, the founder of Rainbow Room Publishing, Eddie Pierce. Eddie, your books, <laughs> they all begin with love. <laughs> and I like this, like love, something infinitive, uh, infinite, you know, then you talk about the different things of love changes. And they're talking about someone who has your middle name for their first name, Saran, what made you decide you were going to follow him down this pathway of love, not only his love, but the love that's around him? What made you feel that this was an important focus to do? Uh, You know, it's it's one of those things where I, I hate to keep kind of saying this, but it just, you know, you're a writer as well, so you know that a lot of times mm-hmm. it's just you start off in one direction and it takes a totally different life of its own. Um, I also am, you know, very aware of the fact that even when I look at all all of the books, um, there is, you know, a visible, obvious, apparent influence on, you know, from whatever I was dealing with in that chapter of my own life. Um, mm-hmm. But when it came to that book, um, I was in um, kind of on the tail end. Well, not even the tail end. I can't really say that. But I was very much into the process of learning to love and accept myself. Um, I was actually also in a relationship at that time that really facilitated um, and gave me a great safe space from which to kind of see who I was and to love all the different aspects of myself to explore how, you know, my spirituality and my sexuality actually should be working in tandem and not be kept separate. Um, So the more I was writing or experiencing those things, and as I mentioned, you know, um, with the first book, you know, it just, its purpose kept growing and evolving into something else, something to do on the plane, something to get me into grad school, something to get me out of grad school. And so Mm -hmm. since I had that, that honestly just that real targeted ambition to get as many pages as I needed to get, um, you know, it just started somewhere very, very, I don't know, simple. And as further I went on with the story, just as I was a friend of somebody else recently, um, you know, once the characters are kind of established and you know their motivations and the way they think, you know, the story just kind of writes itself. So somewhere in there, I was had already probably started with the writing about uh, Saran, the Stitch character, and how he was trying to find all of that self-acceptance. And, um, not even, honestly, I can't even say that. He was, much like myself at the, uh, earlier than that period, he was looking for so much love and acceptance outside of himself. And he had some different experiences that taught him he has to find it inside first. 
And it was exactly what I experienced in a lot of respects that the moment I really started to love and accept myself, I could clearly see it was already there in a lot of respects, mm-hmm. the love and support that I had from all these family members and saying, and I'm sorry, I'm a little nasal, so I keep stopping. But okay. um, that um, I, had, I had that same experience that where I thought uh, my sexuality Primarily, my sexuality was what was going to bar me from being loved by all these different people. And it was one of the main reasons I didn't love myself at the time. And so when I found that self-acceptance in myself, I saw it naturally reflected in the writing. And like I said, I saw that the love that I was trying to get and trying to acquire by trying to be someone else in so many different instances was already there. It was already assured. Um, so um, that's, that's kind of how we even started on that track. Um, but then it, you know, I don't know. I have to admit, it just, it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, you know, we talked beforehand about, you know, some of the things, being mindful of some things that the readers want. And with the first book, when it was done, the one of the main questions that I kept getting in one shape, form, or fashion was, well, what about this character? What about that character? And I honestly had no plans for those characters at the time. They were purely, you know, we're both writers, plot devices. They were somebody to mm-hmm. help, you know, Saran get from the, the central character, get from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Um, mm-hmm. But I became intrigued with those characters as well, and next thing you know, we're looking at the second book, and I have to admit, um, the love just, it just stuck. Um, I found myself in that book looking at it from another angle, the angle of the person who, you know, had it, lost it, and is kind of scared of it. Uh, That's how we get to uh, love from behind, the idea of Mm -hmm. um, the character that, you know, and we see a lot of people that, you know, do this, unfortunately, too, that are trying to avoid love and trying to avoid connection, but ironically, they're in and out of relationships and in and out of beds and in and out of sexual encounters. And in the midst of all that running love, snuck up from behind. Um, mm-hmm. And so it just, it seems like a, on some level, like I've maybe painted myself in a corner and it's just where I've stuck with. Um, but also even just the idea that, going back to the idea of wanting universal appeal, and someone asked me this in another interview, now that I think about it, um, it's like, why do you always write about love? Why do you always write about love? And I would <laughs> tell them, well, for one thing, if you get into the book, really, you're seeing that this is not um, purely like a romance novel. It's not purely erotica. Um, as I explain to people, love and sex, you know, it's a part of life. It's a part of mm-hmm. all of our experiences. If I'm going to write a story and try to give you a full picture, I have to give you all the aspects of this person. And then, of course, you know, we also know that sex fails, and sometimes that's a little cheap little hook that you can use in a story. But um, when you really get to looking at it, I'm trying to cover as many angles of that subject as possible. As I explained to a friend of mine, love is one of those things that just permeates everything. Your longing for it, your pursuit of it, your acquisition of it, your loss of it, the way you interpret it, the way you express it, you know, your expectations of it, we can all relate to that. So if I'm looking at it purely from the standpoint of a business person, if I'm looking at it purely from the standpoint of an artist who wants to connect with as many people as possible, 
it's just the perfect topic. It's something that we can all relate to. You know, even if you are coming in, like I explained a lot, on this very specific, very, um, uh, yeah, specific is the best word, a very specific vantage point of a character who's black, who's gay, who's Christian, somewhere in there you still can see something that you've experienced. You know, and mm-hmm. I've been very gratified by the fact that, honestly, with going even going back to the first book once again, um, a majority of the feedback that I got was from a lot of straight people in my life. And, you know, they obviously read everything based on the questions they were asking me, but they kind of looked all past some of the things that were specific to being gay, maybe just even the encounter, the sexual encounters being between gender loving people. But they were able to zero in on some things that they themselves have experienced, they themselves, you know, are trying to express and acquire. You know, so it was it was great. It's been great confirmation and the idea that I picked a good subject, a good subject that is, in a lot of respects, inexhaustible and, you know, has universal appeal. Now, I was listening to uh, an interview of Valerie Simpson, and she was talking about how Nick Ashford wrote the song, I Am Every Woman. And um, I want to say Oprah was interviewing her, and she said, well, how did he do that? And she said, you know, she said that he sort of had it, but he didn't know. And she said that she told him, now you know, you know, just get in touch with that that, that feminine space down there and come on Uh out with this song. Now you write in every voice. How did you... When you, did you ever go back and go like, you know what, she's sounding too much like Eddie and not like Cherie. How did, how did, you, how did you have your Nick Ashford moment and, and come up with that voice? <laughs> Excuse me, sorry, I'm getting over cold. But, um, you know, and that's actually, you went to the perfect example because when it came to writing Saran, so much of that was, Elementary, it was me borrowing a lot for myself. When it came to writing the other males, um, a lot of that, I think, um, one thing I noticed that I've done, you know, over the years when I write um, at the risk of sounding schizophrenic or something, I've looked at different aspects of my personality mm-hmm. and just made them a character in some different respects. When it came to Cherie, however, actually, honestly, she was uh, she's first introduced in the second book, Love from Behind, um, mm-hmm. and this is the book where central character is just, is, this brother is just all out there, just really, really wild, and I needed, um, I needed someone to balance him. I needed someone to give as good as he gave in the sense of the fact that he was sleeping with multiple people. It wasn't necessarily that he was cheating with anyone on anyone because he wasn't in a relationship. But he was that character, like I said before, that was just running from anything that looked like the love that broke his heart beforehand. And Cherie is the one character that comes in that he's actually really, really into. And the roles get a little bit reversed, whereas he's normally the one that everybody is desiring and trying to keep up with. He's trying to keep up with her. And so... When it came to that, I said, I need a strong female character. I need um, somebody that's going to keep him on his toes, you know, and that sort of thing. And so, once again, I went back to my experiences with, you know, all these various sisters, girlfriends, sister girlfriends, and a lot of the stories and the jokes and things that, you know, we shared and things like that. And so I drew a lot, I had to admit, from 
the uh, stories that they they've told me in the past, um, a lot about the interactions that they've had with men, uh, some of them also with women, and um, that was like the core of you know where Sheree came from. But even then, she was only a secondary character in the second book. In the current book, however, um, she's another one of those characters that you know I got intrigued by. Readers got intrigued by. And I decided, hey, I have to know more about this character. The only way to do that is to write it. And mm-hmm. when it came to writing her, I had so many concerns about it just being very, very obvious in the midst of the reading that you're reading about a woman written by a man. And I was just really, really like, okay, how do I clean this up? How do I make sure this doesn't happen? And so thankfully I have a trusted circle of friends, I believe this before, friends and family that, you know, I let them read all sorts of things, whether I was writing it for a professional purpose or not. And so I went to that, you know, circle of friends, which is, 50, 75% women. And, you know, that was honestly what I told them to do. I need you to read this, and I need you to point out anything that just rings untrue to you, that just really just reminds you, oh, this is a guy writing this. He has no idea what he's talking about. And so um, I think out of maybe six people, I had uh, three uh, of my friends that did read it, um, and I have to I have to admit I felt pretty good with my sample size because I had people that had been reading stuff from me since long before I thought to publish, up to people I had met just that year as I was writing it. And all of them came back with the same feedback that brother, you own it. You hit it. I have mm, that same mm-hmm. issue, I have that same concern that pisses me off. Um, you know, I had to it was necessary but I kinda had to look at relationships to fathers and daughters, and I kind of felt like that might be too cliche, but then I had, you know, the readers that came back and said, no, nah, brother, that's the real stuff. It's, it's, it's cliche for a reason, because it keeps happening, and it's, it's still prevalent, and it's still relevant. Um, so when it came to her, um, even in the dedication that I made um, for the uh, short story, you know, I thank wholeheartedly thank all of the sisters and friends and females that, you know, invited me into their space and trusted me with their stories and trusted me with their insights on things. And it just was natural, you know, to write it. Um, I have to admit one thing that I, I really appreciate from her story was uh, something that I see happen a lot when my girlfriends get together and if I'm there, you get into that circular debate of dating and the difficulties of dating as a woman and, and you know, trying to be uh, soft on one side but having to be assertive on another side and, you know, dealing with the cat calling and the unwanted attention and being called a bitch if you have just the slightest little bit of a mood. Um, and for me, so much of that rang true because there I was on same time in real life, mm-hmm. not necessarily engaging in the conversation, but they're like a fly on the wall, like, oh, yeah, this is what they talk about for real. Yeah, this is, this is it. You know, so um, I have to admit, it wasn't even so much of a thing of trying to tap into my quote-unquote feminine energy when it came to it. It's just I had many, many great examples uh, from which to draw. Do you still sometimes, have you still ever been in a situation and you sort of feel her tap on your shoulder and said, see, you know what I'm talking about. You know, do you still feel her with you? Uh, definitely uh, all of them, honestly, all of them. Um, one of the things that, um, going back to the idea of the discussion, uh, book discussion, so um, like I said, I take out 
you know, different issues and things that were brought up. And you, you alluded to, you know, uh, you know, trying to my my sense to examine uh, sexism and things like that in the corporate workplace, things of that nature. And um, you know, I have to admit, I know enough to know that I'm, you know, will never really understand, fully understand everything that goes on for a woman as a woman. But I thought I had a good handle on some things until about the time that I started writing the book which was coincidentally when I spent a lot more concentrated time with a friend of mine, one of my female friends from high school and college. Um, she's also an upcoming author, uh, Crystal Renee Tilden. Uh She's going to be the first author that I publish outside of myself through Wrangles on Publishing. But uh, we spent a concentrated amount of time last year, uh, like almost for each other almost every day. And in those interactions with her, there was just so much that, she brought to light intentionally, unintentionally, consciously, unconsciously that women deal with that men just don't even, it, it just is nowhere on our radar, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, just even the idea of feeling safe walking down the street. You know, even as a man in Chicago, urban youth, of course, I'm always watching my back, um, especially thinking about, you know, walking around at night. But, you know, she's just talking about walking around, period. You know, where I would just mm-hmm. simply throw on this shirt I'm looking at, these shorts, and go out the door and do what I got to do, um, you know, I'm listening to her and subsequently some of the female uh, uh, readers that came to the book discussion and thinking about the idea of, you know, well, I want to go out the door any old kind of way, but I have to dress a certain kind of way because I don't want this attention, I don't want that attention. And regardless of all those efforts, I still get all this negative attention. And I was like, wow. It was just, I mean, yeah, I'm aware that the cat call and all of that. Mm-hmm. But it was at such a deeper, deeper level. So now it, for me, is like when I look at, you know, particularly if I'm looking at maybe a dispute between the male and the female or if I'm looking at something that, you know, I've been seeing a woman do forever, now having some more insight. So in that sense, yeah, Sharia is still kind of tapping me on my shoulder. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I just have to admit, I feel a lot more aware. And I'm pretty sure there's a, a whole mountain load of more things to be aware of. But, you know, just even that little bit of awareness, and that was something that, you know, I wanted to do with those book sessions, that I wanted to highlight some things that we don't all necessarily think about. And in this particular instance, it just happened to be, in my opinion, a great opportunity for me as a man who, you know, according to a lot of thoughts and ideas of society, has privilege that women don't, uh, to use that privilege to shine a spotlight on some of the things that are of particular interest and concerns for women. You know? mm-hmm. uh, so, yes, yeah, she definitely stays with me. She's definitely one of my favorite characters. He's one of my favorite characters. So, Eddie, what's next? I know, I've, I've, I know that you put the three short stories into one package. You just sort of mentioned how you signed, um, you're starting to work with your next author. What's next in the future for Rainbow Room uh, Publishing and for you? Oh, well, as always, it's always mm-hmm. a million things, um, a million irons in the fire uh, sort of thing. Um, but probably the easiest thing, um, I've always, since I started this, I'm always trying to be in a position to have something already out there, something that I'm currently promoting, and something new on on the way. You know, just thinking about how quick society moves and how quickly, you know, we can get on to something and be over it the next minute. 
Um, so I, I think I alluded to this uh, earlier. I'm actually uh, 20 pages into the book that comes beyond it, uh, which the working title right now, Love After Sex. Um, but basically this is uh, where I plan to wrap up the entire series. Um, following this book, it's actually perfect time to do it in light of the fact that I kind of feel like all of the cast members are in place. Um, everyone has a good, um, the readers has a good working knowledge of all of the different characters. Um, so I'm working on that book and hoping to finish that maybe sometime next year. Um, and then beyond that, there are a number of other writing uh, endeavors. I definitely am revisiting those, uh, that literature I wrote as a child and how that could be adapted to children's literature. A number of other things, honestly, a comic book series that was something that I was writing back in the day that I'm actually looking at, trying to pursue, and um, even a graphic novel, you know, just a thick mm. comic book, um, a, a science fiction piece that I wrote when I was in high school. Uh, that I wanted to convert into that. Uh, so that's kind of just that as far as the writing goes. Uh, definitely looking into any opportunities to adapt uh, the work into, I, I really, really, I know a lot of people are telling me web series and all of that, and I definitely want to go that route. But I don't know if it's just something old, classical, and conventional in me that I want to do a stage play. One of the greatest experiences for me was that I got to see Dylan Harris's book. Um, I forget which one it was. I don't know if it was Invisible Life or not, but uh, I think it was actually a mixture of two books. This was easily maybe mm-hmm. 15 years ago, but uh, two of the books were put together into one story, and they made it into a stage play. And it was the first time that I had seen any book that I personally read on the stage, and it's just been a dream of mine for a long time. So um, that's definitely something I'm also pursuing. And then probably the most uh, notable thing is that um, following uh, publishing uh, Crystal uh, Pillman, I this fall will also be taking uh, a submission for publishing projects. So the company basically is moving into the stage where it's kind of a hybrid of traditional publishing in the sense of where I have the funds, where I see a submission that I really, really believe in, that I'm just going to go ahead and publish it without any cost to the author, as well as having the self-publishing service option for anyone that wants to go that route. Uh, So I'm anticipating, I actually already have my website kind of set up to take, well, not take submissions, but to kind of start the uh, conversation about, you know, where you are with your writing. Do you need a writing coach? Do you need a ghostwriter? giving a brief synopsis of the story, you know, all of this different stuff that we traditionally look for a publisher to do before they say, okay, send me the manuscript. Um, mm-hmm. But ideally in the fall of uh, picking up the actual, okay, I've gotten all these query letters. These are the ones of particular interest. These are the manuscripts I want, you know, them to actually send in to me, and these are the ones that we're going to pursue uh, publishing. So that's... Uh, probably the next big, big step is the idea of finally pursuing the other half of this dream, which was, you know, the first being writing and publishing my own work. But, you know, you mentioned beforehand about the struggles and things that we go through, and I just thought to myself that, okay, if I manage to open a door for myself to publish, how many more people can I get through this door, so to speak? So I'm very excited to finally be, you know, putting my... I got you dipping my toe in 
that side of the pool, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. as far as publishing other people. I'm really, really honestly looking forward to uh, where we talked beforehand about, you know, balancing being the artist, being the author, and the publisher. There have been so many times over the years that I've said to myself, if I was only doing one of these two things, oh, my God, I can only imagine how good this would be. You know, I'm still mm-hmm. satisfied with what I accomplished, but when I, I just know enough to know that if all of my effort and concentration was put in one of the two areas perpetually, you know, it's going to be great. So I'm looking forward to even that experience of being just purely the publisher, you know, uh, for someone else. So, uh, yeah, so number of things, a number of things um, on the plate. Of course, you know, we, we, we uh, write all of our plans in pencil, and we do our best to, you know, see them come to fruition. And every now and again, we shift them around and come back to them later. But that's pretty much everything that's kind of on the ducket. Uh, in the next uh, few months, actually. So, Eddie, if people, I mean, I know that many of our listeners are going to want to keep up with you to know what you're doing, to hear about these these submission dates. What's the best way for them to do that? Uh, Definitely go to the website, uh, Um That's where you can, you know, purchase the work, free samples of the work, you can see interviews, listen to interviews. Um, I do have a submissions page uh, that's open now for people to kind of start that conversation with me about, you know, what they want to do with their writing, where they are with the writing, what types of services support they they need, you know, early on. Um, and eventually I am going to do better about having the calendar of events uh, mm-hmm. posted on there as well so that they can see uh, any of the upcoming uh, book events. Well, Eddie, I want to thank you for taking time to be with me today and to share your story. Um, well, I have to have you come back to find about, out more about this royal scribe at Wakanda. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's for another conversation. <laughs> for, but, Eddie, thank you so much. Um, I look forward to sharing your story with our, our listeners and to seeing more of your work and you in Chicago. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Well, you have a great afternoon, and I will be in touch with you. Same to you. I want to thank today's guest, author, and founder of Rainbow Room Publishing, Eddie S. Pierce, Jr., You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.